Good morning, City Light Church. Didn't mean to distract you with my cough there. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the uh, pastors here uh, for the City Light Church family. You can grab a seat, and uh, as you do, let me say it's, uh, it's good to be with you. However, I was in um, Phoenix, Arizona this week for a pastor's conference, so it's as good as it is to be with you. It's not good to be back in Nebraska. Woke up yesterday morning to that miserable white stuff on the ground, and I felt like I heard a fresh calling from the Lord to City Light Phoenix. So if anyone is hearing a call as well, we're going to have a little core team gathering, a little prayer time in the back. Uh, and uh, we'll just pray into Phoenix what the Lord might have for us there. Open your Bibles to Colossians. We're going to be uh, rounding the corner this morning into chapter 2. This is our seventh week in the book of Colossians, and finally chapter 2. Additionally, this is our seventh week together uh, in the West Gathering for City Light Church. So how about that? We made it. You guys kept coming back. We're still here, and uh, the Word of God is uh, moving forward. So we praise God for that. Uh, As you turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. I'll say that typically when we preach these sermons, we're supposed to give a little introductory illustration. That's what they teach you in the preaching class. And so a good opening illustration will both identify the main theme of the text and help engage the hearts of the congregation into the main theme of the text. Uh, But this morning I'm going to break all those rules. I don't have any creative illustration. I want to get us right to work and bring us right into the main theme of these first five verses of the um, chapter two of Colossians. And so what I want to do is introduce uh, this main theme that we're going to deal with today. And I'm going to give a little bit of a longer introduction dealing with this theme. And then we're going to have three shorter points uh, out of the text uh, that really build up and uh, support that main theme. And so if you look at Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5, you're going to see that there's not a period until the end of verse 3. What we have in verses 1 through 3 is a Wayne State, Chris Haruska run-on sentence. (laughs) Paul just never comes up for air, never puts a period. It's one very long run-on sentence. And if you geek out and diagram this thing, just say, what is the subject? What is the predicate? What is he saying Uh, I want to show you that in 71 long words, Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, is saying this one simple thing. Church, I want you to know Jesus. That's the logic of the 71-verse run-on sentence. I want you to know Jesus. Now, Remember this, and I'll show you how it says that in just a second. We're going to deal with it word by word, verse by verse. We're going to go through it. But remember, who is Paul writing to in the book of Colossians? Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Not a trick question, people. Wake up. Coffee's free. Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? Christians. You'll remember seven weeks ago, he opens the book. Paul, an apostle Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, or the saints and faithful brothers. So if Paul calls you a saint and a faithful brother, you are a Christian, okay? So these are people that had heard the gospel good news, who Jesus is, that he lived the righteous life that they should have, that he died the death that they deserved to, that he rose again to give them eternal life, and these are people who have trusted in Jesus. They prayed the prayer, they know Jesus, they're walking with Jesus, and yet, Paul says... Saints, faithful brothers, Christians, I want you to know Jesus. Like, well, yeah, Paul, we know him. We met him. We trusted him. No, I want you to know Jesus. Moreover, look what he says in verse 
uh, three. Uh, no, sorry, two. He says to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, I know you know Jesus. I want you to reach the full assurance of knowing Jesus and what that means. In other words, Christians, I want you to grow in what you already know. I want you to grow in what you already know. See, Paul is a gospel-centered pastor. And what he knows about Christian growth is that we don't just trust Jesus and then move on to to five points of self-improvement, three steps to a more joy-filled life, 12 steps to a a life-giving marriage, eight steps to breakthrough in your obedience. No, he knows that the The key heart, soul, sum, and center of the Christian faith is not principles to live out, but a person to know and to grow in what we know, and that is Jesus Christ. Have you ever known something to be true, and over time you just grow in your assurance, more than ever that it's true? You already knew it, but you grow in what you know. When I married my wife, I knew that I married up. I knew that she was amazing, and then we had three kids, planted some churches, she homeschools like a boss, and now I am more assured than ever that my wife is amazing that I've grown in what I know. And you know what, you know what I mean? Some of you are not picking it up. How about this? I knew that Justin Timberlake was my musical man crush, okay? I knew that. He's amazing. And then he dropped his new album, Man of the Woods, and now I, I'm more assured than ever that he is my musical man crush. I've grown in what I know. Are you with me? So that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, I know you know Jesus, but what you need to do is grow in your assurance. You need to come back to Jesus. You need to root your heart in Jesus. Because what Paul knows is that the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, doesn't just save us, though it does, it also changes us. We need the gospel, not just for the front door to Christianity, the way to get into the kingdom, though we do need Jesus, he's the only way to the Father, So too, we need the good news of Jesus to grow, to mature as Christians, to learn how to walk in obedience. And so at City Light Church, I just want you to know that um, gospel centrality, gospel being good news of what Jesus has done, is not just a trendy thing that we're trying to hook into. It's the very center of this book. This book drips of good news. It has bad news, the law, the conviction of sin, how we have disobeyed God, but it has great news that Jesus Christ has overcome the law, has fulfilled the law on our behalf, and that the whole life is coming back to this good news, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done in us and through us and for us, and that that begins to transform us from the inside out. And so, um, how do I say this? Let let me sum it up this way. I told you it's going to be a long introduction. Uh, When we think about the gospel, just if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're new to the church, uh, let me slow down for just a second and define terms. Gospel means good news. The good news that Jesus Christ lived a life that we couldn't, that he died the death that we ought to, that he rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And we believe, and the Bible affirms, that when we trust in that for the first time, when we say, yes, I am a sinner by nature and choice, I need the forgiveness of Jesus, I trust in you, Jesus, that that is how we become a Christian. And what I'm saying this morning, what we're going to see in the text, is that as we come back to that truth over and over and over, it begins to change us. Gospel-centered growth. Let me uh, show you what that looks like in some practical areas in our lives. I want you to think about the Christian who might struggle with insecurity. 
person who has trusted Jesus Christ, received Jesus, I know Jesus, and yet kind of an Eeyore Christian, ho-hum, nobody likes me. You know what that Christian needs for sanctification? They don't just need a good pep talk. Like a Stuart Smalley, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Everyone over 35 is laughing. Everyone 20 is like, I don't know. (laughs) That person doesn't need a pep talk. They need to be reminded of the gospel. They need to grow in what they know. They already know the route to confidence. It's that they are so loved and valued by God that he sent his only son to ransom and redeem them. And when you let your heart dwell in that, steep in that, you can't keep your head down. There's a humble confidence that comes with knowing that you are loved by God. Conversely, the arrogant Christian, the Christian who struggles with pride, I've never met one (laughs) other than myself, that person uh, doesn't just need knocked down a notch. What do they need? They need to grow in the assurance of the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that you are so wicked and sinful that you are unable to remedy your own condition. The only judgment that was worthy of you was the, the eternal wrath of God. And the only thing that could rescue you was God. That's how bad it was. You needed divine rescue. And yet God has done that on your behalf because he loves you. And when your heart is steeped in that, it's really hard to look down your nose at other people in arrogance and pride. Amen? We need to grow in what we know. It not only saves us, it begins to change us. What about the Christian who struggles with sexual promiscuity? That person doesn't just need to to get better self-control, get a hold of yourself. What do they need to do? They need to grow in their assurance of the gospel. That their approval and acceptance is not determined by their peers and the people around them or any sensual experience. It's determined and established by Jesus Christ. They are so loved and accepted by God that they don't need to search the world for affirmation and enjoyment, but they have found all they need in Jesus Christ. The Christian marriage on the rocks doesn't just need five improvement, uh, self-improvement steps toward a better marriage. What do they need? They need to grow in what they know, the understanding of the gospel, that Jesus Christ gave up all of his rights for who? His bride, the church. He laid down his demands and his rights and humbled himself to build her up. And so too, when we understand that, and in a Christian marriage, when we live that same reality out toward each other, modeling what Jesus Christ has first shown us, it begins to strengthen our marriage. It's a beautiful thing when we both live that way in marriage. So what I want you to see that Paul is showing them we become a Christian by believing the gospel and we mature as Christians by believing the gospel. That is the Christian life. And so now as we, with that as our framework, that is our foundation. This morning I want to take a look at these five verses and what we're going to see is is three themes of gospel-centered growth. Three themes of gospel-centered ministry. And so I want us to see the struggle of gospel-centered ministry. I want us to see the context of gospel-centered ministry. And I want, to see us, I want us to see the hope or the goal of gospel-centered ministry. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is the struggle of gospel-centered ministry. And I'd encourage you to write down in your notes this one truth. The struggle is real. Write down the struggle is real. It's good news, but there's a struggle. Look at verse 1. My Bible turned. It's these vents again. We'll get it worked out. Here we go. What book are we in? Colossians. Other way. Colossians 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Colossians, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul begins this section by saying, I want you to know that I struggle for you. Now, that word that Paul uses there for struggle is the word agon. It's the word from which we derive our English word agony. 
Originally, this word has its roots in the area where the Greeks would gather for the Olympics. The idea being that they would meet in Agon and that they would agonize in wrestling and in foot races. So the idea of agon or struggle is not one of torment, but one of labor, one of hard work. Paul is saying, I want you to know how hard I work for you, how hard I labor for you. And notice that he doesn't just struggle, he wants them to know about his struggle. He says in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Now, why would this be important to Paul, that they know that he is struggling for them? Is Paul being a baby? Is he being a wimp? Does he want sympathy? Paul Schleicher, one of my mentors over here, often says, don't tell me about the labor, just show me the baby. (laughs) I don't care about your struggle, show me the product, right, Paul? Don't tell me about the labor, show me the baby. And so what's going on here with Paul? Why does he want them to know that he struggles for them? Is he being a martyr? Is he looking for pity or sympathy? No, here's why he wants them to know he struggles. He wants them to know that he loves them. He wants them to know that they are loved. You don't willingly struggle for people that you don't love. You do it for those that you love. I grew up in a, in a blue-collar family in Waverly, Nebraska. And my old man wasn't a, a gushy, lovey, huggy-feely, warm, affectionate kind of guy, but I never doubted his love for me and the family. Why? Because I saw his struggle. My dad often worked first shift, uh, third shift and first shift. Blue-collar guy working in the factory. And so he wore a blue shirt. He had his name on his pocket, still does. And for seasons, when he would work both shifts, I remember seeing the old man get up uh, in the the evening and go to work at midnight. He'd work all throughout the night, and then he'd go to his other job and work all throughout the day. And I saw him in the late evenings come home. He would take off his steel-toed boots. He smelled like machine oil. And uh, he would look tired, and he'd go upstairs and fall asleep for a few hours. And then he'd head back in at midnight. And even though my dad wasn't the gushy affection, I love you, big guy, I knew that he loved me. Why? Because I saw his struggle. That's a man who's invested in the family, who's loving us well. In a similar way, Paul wants this church to know that as he pens these letters, as he says, church, I want you to know Jesus, he wants them to sense his love for them, that he labors, that this is not just a hallmark card and good sentiment. That he has labored in prayer for this church, that he longs for them to know Jesus. Because gospel-centered ministry is always rooted in love. Here's why. When you experience the gospel, when you really know how much God loves you, and the great cost that he has paid for your life and your ransom, your heart expands. And with an expanded heart, expanded love, comes expanded suffering. Those of you who have had kids, you know how this works, just practically. When you have a child, your heart grows. You are able to love in ways that you never thought you would, and so too does your capacity for struggle. The diapers, the sleepless nights, the constant concern for their well-being, if you love, you will struggle. And and here's what I want you to know, is that as you experience the love of Jesus, as you understand his gospel love for you, your love for other people will grow, and so too it will be struggle. At the heart of a gospel-centered church, one rooted in the love and the work of Jesus Christ, will always be struggle and love for one another. Paul wants these Colossians to know that he struggles for them to know Jesus more and more because he loves them. It's because he loves them that he doesn't want them to be persuaded by plausible arguments. It's because he loves them that he labors for them in prayer. It's because he loves them that he writes this letter, helping them to get a bigger view of Jesus Christ so that they wouldn't move on from the gospel. That is his struggle, and the struggle is real. So there's a struggle to gospel-centered ministry. So I would press this into our church 
in two ways, the struggle of gospel-centered ministry. The first way I would encourage you with this or apply it is by saying that Paul's heart here is the heart of a pastor. And at the risk of sounding a little bit gushy this morning, I want you to know, as one of your pastors, that in an imperfect, albeit very real way, the same love that Paul has for this church is the love that I have for you, City Light. And I know I speak on behalf of all the pastors. I want you to know that in ministry, this is not a job for me. This is not a hobby for me. This is not something I've pursued because it's convenient or easy. If you want to know what makes the heart of your pastors tick, it's love for Jesus and love for his bride. You guys are not a fun organization. You are the bride of Christ that Jesus loved enough to die for. And it's my joy out of love to serve him alongside you and to serve you for his glory and, and for our good. So I want you to know that I love you. And as your pastors, we do struggle. Like Paul, as ministers, there's labor that goes into this. We labor over these sermons. We labor in prayer. Saturday nights, I don't sleep well. I wrestle and I pray. And I wait for that alarm to go off. And I underline and I edit and I long for you guys to see the fullness of Jesus Christ because we know that all week long you are hearing what Paul's going to call in verse 3 or 4 plausible arguments from the culture that is stirring to steer your heart into discontentedness. All week long, you're hearing messages. Money will satisfy you. A relationship will satisfy you. Getting out of a relationship will satisfy you. A promotion will satisfy you. Finally, having kids will satisfy you. Finally, getting the kids out of the house will satisfy you. Sex will satisfy you. A different house, a different spouse will satisfy you. And as your pastors, our chief aim is to help you see that only Jesus will satisfy you. When you truly believe that truth, all of the temptations of this world will lose their luster once you see that Jesus Christ is the treasure. And so we want you to know, one, just as a church body, you are loved. We long for you to see Jesus Christ and the fullness of his love for you. Additionally, I would press this into our context by reminding you that Paul's heart of struggle here is not just the heart of a pastor, but the heart of a gospel-centered Christian. And so, too, I would say that your heart, once you know Jesus, ought to be expanding for the people around you. And I would ask you, has your heart been enlarged by the gospel? Do you struggle for the people around you to know and grow in Jesus? See, the gospel always moves from vertical to horizontal in our lives. And so let me say, if your heart is heavy for the people in your life to know Jesus— and the people in your life that are Christians to know Jesus and experiencing him more so they'll quit fooling around with the world and all of its fool's gold, that that is a good struggle. That means that the gospel is taking root in your heart if you are struggling and burdened for other people around you. That's a good sign. And so if I could just encourage some of you very practically. Uh, first off, for those of you who are leading city groups, those are not the only people who labor, but in our church, we have upwards of 200 people that are laboring in city groups to make disciples, to help people understand the gospel. And for those, I just want to say thank you. My wife and I know the struggle of leading a city group, and the struggle is real. The struggle of coming home after work, you're already a little bit tuckered out and emotionally drained. I'm an introvert. I'm with people all day, and when I come home on city group night, it's like you got to dig deep and pray and we take all the kids' toys and jam them underneath the couch in 15 minutes and try to make our house look habitable by real human beings that are employed. And 
Then we throw some brownies in the oven, and then you grab your study guide notes, and you go through it really quick because you forgot the, the night before because you were praying in the Spirit, not watching Netflix, right, probably, or you were watching Netflix. So you're, you're going over your notes, and then people show up, and then you lead a moderately awkward conversation, Bible study, in a circle for about an hour and a half, and you're just praying that they're picking up something. And then that one lady goes rogue talking about something that has nothing to do with the study, and you're like, dear Lord Jesus, help me. Rain this in. Rain this in. So you, re- you say, that's a good, thanks for sharing that. Anyway, verse 4 says, you know, and you're just hoping, like, am I making disciples or what are we doing here? And then they all leave and you go downstairs and there's a granola bar smashed into your carpet and the basement toilet's clogged. Or is that just my city group? Anyway, I got some, some stuff I got to work out with. The struggle is real, though. And they leave and you pray, oh, Lord, I don't know if they get the gospel. <laughs> you help them to understand And then there's the couple that comes for a while and then doesn't call, and then you're wrestling through, oh, I don't want to be the legalistic guy that's weird and makes them feel guilty for not coming to Bible study. So do I pick up the phone? Do I call them? Do I not? Do we just give them space? Maybe we just pray. It weighs on your mind, does it not? When you love other people and you long for them to know Jesus, there's a struggle. And I want you to know that according to Paul's example in Colossians 2, that the struggle is not a sign of failure. It's a sign of success. Struggle is a sign of success. If you're struggling for other people to know Jesus and walk with him, it means you're doing something right, okay? There's no struggle. Maybe you're not helping people understand Jesus. Second group I'd like to encourage is parents. Our primary calling as parents is to steward God's children that he has entrusted to us. And what that means is our chief goal in parenting is discipleship, to help our kids understand who Jesus is and to walk with him for a lifetime. And let me just say, the struggle is real. I'll be the first to confess as a dad when I come home from work. I don't always have energy to do our dinnertime Bible study or devotion. At the end of the day, I don't always have gas in the tank to pray with my kids, to have gospel conversations, to press in, to engage in meaningful ways. I will just admit, it's a struggle. And so I would say that if you're a, if you're a parent and you're struggling to disciple your kids and to help them understand Jesus, it's a good struggle. The struggle is a sign of success. Don't quit struggling. Don't give up because it's not convenient or easy, but keep struggling. Pray for your kids. Buy a simple dinnertime devotion to read to your kids. Read the Bible with your kids. Talk about Jesus with your kids. The struggle is real and the struggle is good. There's a struggle to gospel-centered ministry because we're not just dishing out principles to live by, but we're helping people to see and experience the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? The struggle is real. Second thing I want you to see is the context. Where does this gospel-centered ministry happen? Write this down. The context is community. Community. Look at verse 2. He's going to talk about how they grow in their assurance of the fullness of God, which is Jesus Christ. What does he say in verse 1? He struggles what? That their hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. To know Jesus. He says, I struggle for you that your hearts would be encouraged and knit together in love. What Paul is saying is that gospel assurance comes through our brotherly love within the church. Theologian F.F. Bruce says this about this verse. He says, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. In other words, it's one thing to read about God's love and grace. It's a whole other thing to experience that love and grace from people who have experienced Jesus as well. 
You know, the one thing that is true of every Christian, every true Christian that we all have in common is that we have seen our sin. We know that we're guilty. We've been humbled by conviction. And yet we have seen the love of a God who has moved to, uh, toward us in ways that we don't deserve and cannot earn. And I'll tell you what, there's something amazing that happens when these kinds of rescued sinners come together who know and understand what grace is all about because they've experienced it. When they move toward one another in the same way, the same grace that Jesus has moved toward them, it's an amazing thing, and it's called the church. If you've ever been in a church where you've experienced condemnation, better than thouism, self-righteousness, I want you to know that is not gospel community. That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not a church. Church is centered around Jesus Christ. It's a hospital for sinners. So when we come together experiencing grace and showing grace, our hearts are knit together in love and we grow in our experience of the gospel and it changes us. That's the way it works. Now, very practically, uh, here's what this has looked like for me, even in recent seasons. I could tell lots of stories. The community of God's people has been so formative in my life. Uh, but just in the last year and a half, uh, my wife and I started a new city group. And just in this bit of time, the 18 months or so, this city group has become like a family to us. And they have helped me experience Jesus in deeper ways. So in this group, I've been able to open up and share about some complex relational dynamics that I'm navigating in my life. I know y'all don't have any of those, but I do, so deal with it. And as I've opened up to this group of people, I've seen this group of people be the church to me. I've seen them pray for me and my family, encourage me, support me. And I will tell you, just from tangible experience, it's one thing to read about God's love. It's how we understand the gospel. Without the Bible, we cannot be saved. We need to be rooted in the gospel. And yet, it's like watching a movie in black and white. But when you read the Bible about God's love and then you experience that love from real human beings, it's like watching that same movie in color. You see and experience the texture and the depth of what you're leaving, reading about come alive and the people who can look you in the eyeballs and remind you of the truth of Jesus Christ, who can say there's no condemnation for you Gavin, because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. To apply the generalities of the gospel into the particulars of your life is an amazingly powerful thing. And it's helped me experience not only the depths of my sin, but the great grace and love that Jesus Christ has for me. And it's happened in community. The idea here is very simple. We get a very much bigger picture of Jesus when we are doing it together. Amen? And so I would ask you, is your heart knit together with other Christians? Well, yeah, I'm in a Bible study. Well, that's good. That's a good step. You're understanding truth together. But are you applying the gospel toward one another? Are you speaking the truth of Jesus Christ's love toward another? Are you exposing the depths of your heart and the dark areas that they might speak and encourage you with light and truth? I'm convinced that you can become a Christian all by yourself, but it's nearly impossible to grow and mature and all that God has designed for you by yourself. Gospel change, gospel-centered ministry happens in the context of community. And so if I could just beat the drum, I'll just say city groups for us are not just a trendy church model. They aren't a way to meet some nice, new, shiny friends. They are a way for us to grow in the gospel, to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be changed by the gospel. And so to bang maybe the tired drum, join a city group, be in gospel community, Amen. And so the struggle is real. The context of gospel ministry is in community. 
The last thing I want to show you is this. I want to show you the hope of gospel-centered ministry. What's the aim? What's the goal? It's firm faith in Jesus to the end. Firm faith in Jesus till the very end. Look at verse 4. 4 and 5. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you from plausible arguments. Paul shows us the goal of gospel-centered ministry. There's a struggle. It's done in community. And the goal is that you would be immovable, firm in your faith, impenetrable. That by being knit together in community, we would grow in our gospel assurance of Jesus and be faithful to him until the very end. These young Christians in Colossae, as we know from the context, and we're going to learn more particulars in just two weeks, uh, they were being lured away from the gospel by what Paul calls plausible arguments. They were ideas that sounded reasonable. These were not crazy ideas. He says they're plausible. You would hear these arguments and go, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's a, that's a good argument. Paul's saying you're going to hear these things, but I want you to be rooted in the gospel and in community so that you're not lured away. And I would say, if there were plausible arguments in Paul's day, are there not plausible arguments? Anti-Christian, anti-gospel messages that we're hearing that sound reasonable, that sound plausible, that we have to do battle with all the time. The promises of the world are enticing, and our own culture seems to be growing more and more hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our culture would say, listen, the Bible is fiction. Sin is an antiquated idea. Salvation in Jesus is superstition, and life after this life is a myth. So, what are you doing? Live for today. Do what feels good. Create your own heaven on earth. Hook up. Upgrade your spouse. Reach for the stars. Get yours now. Part of the goal of a church community is that we could stare down that lie in the face, that we would point each other to the truth and say, no, that is a lie. God is real. Heaven and hell are real. God's word is truth. Salvation in Jesus is the only way and that together, knit together, struggling in gospel ministry with one another, that we would be faithful to the end. Always Jesus, only Jesus, forever Jesus. Paul says, I say this so that no one would delude you with plausible arguments, so that you would be firm until the end. He, he ends this section with an encouragement. I love his tone here. He kind of starts off with a warning. I say this so that no one would delude you, and then he ends with an encouragement. He says, I also want you to know that I'm not with you, but I've heard about you, and I've heard about the good order of your faith and, and, and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. He encourages them toward the end of fidelity, toward the end. And so I thought it would be fitting, City Light Church, uh, to end our time in this text in just a very similar way. As one of your pastors, I, I want you to hear the encouragement from my lips that I have seen the good order of your faith, church. I've seen your faith in Jesus Christ and the firmness of your faith. And so I want to end by just encouraging you with three things that I've observed about City Light, about you, that encourages me, that I'm rejoicing in. And so number one, I would say this, City Light, you love the Bible. Thank you for loving the Bible. As I greet most of you at the door, most of you are coming in with the Bible. And those of you who aren't have a fake one on your phone, and I think it counts, I don't know. We'll see. The truth is in there. As long as you're not tweeting, if you are tweeting, tweet out my sermon text, huh? <laughs> but I love that you love the Bible. For five years, we've been preaching through books of the Bible, with very few exceptions. And uh, 
Right now, we're preaching a very cutting-edge series. You know what the clever title is? Colossians. It's going to be Colossians until we run out of verses. And that'll be sometime in mid-June, and then we'll go to another book. And yet, you guys show up with your Bibles, you lean forward, you take notes, you apply the Word of God, you live out the Word of God. And I'm convinced that next week, if we started preaching entertaining sermons that were aimed at making you feel good about yourself and trying to grow the church, that y'all would leave the church. That's the best compliment that you can give. And so I want to say I'm encouraged by the firmness of your faith. I love that you love the Bible. Second, if I could encourage you, I would say I love that you love Jesus Christ. I've seen this church growing in your affection for Jesus Christ. Every week we preach about Jesus because every page of this book is about Jesus. And the temptation, the easy button will always be just give me the principles. Just give me the rules to apply. Just show me what I'm supposed to do, and then I'll do it. And yet the Bible doesn't give us that luxury. It points us to a person, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit that he has sent. It's not about principles to apply, but about a person to behold, a person to experience, a person to walk with, a person to worship, Jesus Christ. So City Light, thank you for loving Jesus. It's all about him, amen? You love the Bible, you love Jesus. And then I would say, with equal importance, thank you for loving each other. The people of City Light have taught me more about what it looks like to tangibly love other human beings, particularly brothers and sisters in the church, more than I could ever teach you. I have had the opportunity as a pastor of the church, I tend to see kind of the the worst 10% of things that are happening and and the best 10%. And from that vantage point, it's been mind-blowing to see what it looks like. I've seen families literally carry all of the bills for other families. Mortgage, utilities, insurance, everything for seasons. Very few people know about it until they can get back on their feet when they go through a job loss or a transition. I've seen families move in, single mothers and their children, into their home. Just a private, selfless act of worship and love until that mom can get stabilized and get into a better job environment. I've seen mothers move toward other mothers who have lost lost children and grieve with them, not just through a funeral, but through years of mourning seen persistent and patient love to mend together a mother's broken heart. <clears throat> in Midtown, I've, I've seen dozens of people move toward the Walnut Hill School where they're ba- um, packing and filling backpacks with food for kids who would have long um, weekends like spring break this week who may not have enough food at home to get them through and to mentor children um, in that school. I've seen business owners in our own church helping ex-cons start businesses and become entrepreneurs so that they quit being takers and start being contributors. A whole mind shift set. That's love. It's tangible, tangible love. And I want to say thank you for being a church that loves each other. Hearts knit together, encouraged in love. Amen? City Light, thank you for being a gospel-centered church. Our work is not done. The struggle is real, but we're going to do it in community with the end goal of being faithful to Jesus Christ toward the end because we know that he will hold us fast till the end. Amen?